They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. And we are back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel, and James Hong's speech is still wrapping up. But we're going to let him talk. (laughs) It was pretty awesome at the SAG Awards. Yeah. uh, We are excited to have a co-host this week, a guest co-host. Damon Young is back on Keep It. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to come back. I I really appreciate it. That means that I didn't do as terribly the first time as I thought that I did. So so thank you. It was a unanimous vote, please. You should have seen everybody. We were in tears knowing you would come back. Yes. Wow. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. I I, I greatly appreciate that. Um, Now, the SAC Awards were fun, but David, did you see any of the NAACP Awards this past weekend? Do you care about the NAACP awards? Do you care about the NAACP? <laughs> <laughs> this is an inquisition, by the way. I, I was I was actually nominated for one. Uh, okay. Back in 20, 2019, my book was nominated for one, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. I went out to the award ceremony in 2020. I lost to Toni Morrison because Toni Morrison <laughs> won my, my category because, you know. And what a fraud she is. What <laughs> a fraud. Yeah, yeah. I was robbed. By Toni Morrison. I, so, I'm going to keep it a buck. I didn't even realize that they had categories for books. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm so used to watching the live show and seeing all the movie shit and, you know, the music. I didn't. I had no idea until I was nominated that this was a thing. Oh, yeah. Did they even air your segment? They, no. No, oh, hell no. Hell no. It, my <laughs> segment was the day before in, like, a ballroom, okay. you know, it, with, like, the... You know, with like the rubber chicken and the lasagna <laughs> and the green beans. So I had like the creative art Jimmy's, you yes. know, those. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I do pay attention to the NAACP awards, um, you know, when they're on and mm-hmm. I'm home and there's nothing else to watch. <laughs> I do watch. Right? No, wait, who accepted I, on behalf of Toni Morrison? Ah, shit. Um, it wasn't Oprah being like, you all should be ashamed to even be nominated. Oprah, this Oprah, year. Was, not, Oprah was not in that room. That okay. was not an that was not an Oprah room, right? Got this it. was this was more of like a I don't know, um Niecy Nash um <laughs> sort of room. <laughs> nothing wrong which with is that. Not, and nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah. Like yeah, I actually course. appreciated seeing her more than I would have appreciated seeing Oprah, but Oprah wasn't showing up that day. See, <laughs> you know I, I mean? would wanna see that on TV though. Like presenting on behalf of Toni Morrison is Niecy Nash. And then they play like the claws theme. As she walks up. <laughs> Where they could have had a hologram. You know, we had the hologram technology. That that would have been extremely disconcerting um, and probably blasphemous, but they could have done that if they really wanted to, you know, get the the, the full, you know, Toni Morrison vibe going. But, um, but yeah, it, it was a good time. And, 
And I, I did watch a little bit this year. I saw Viola Davis win something. Um, I think I saw um, there was a hip hop montage also, mm. too, about the 50 years of, of rap music. So I, I did witness that. Um, Those montages are going to be going on all year. Oh, yeah. The 50th year of hip hop, they're going to be everywhere. There's going to be one on Sesame Street. <laughs> <laughs> the Teen Choice Awards. Are gonna, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know what? And I felt like there was a notable. I did, and I also watched that. You know, the the segment where they showed all the people that died mm-hmm. um, last year, and I felt like there was one notable admission. And um, Zach Knight, I, I was waiting for him. Mm. You know, and he wasn't acknowledged at all during the um, during that part. So you know, I was a little disappointed with that. But but oh well, I guess you got to make some editing, some hard editing choices when deciding yeah. to honor the dead. What do you think about uh, the assessment of Angela Bassett as Entertainer of the Year? Provocative question. She was up against Mary J. Blige, Quinta Brunson, Viola Davis, and Zendaya. And again, my my bone to pick with Angela Bassett, as you know, she's an extremely problematic performer, never good on screen. So you know where I'm coming from. But in Wakanda Forever, I would say she's maybe like the sixth most memorable performance. It's just such a weird movie to like zero her out for as like the star of when like, I mean, I don't think I'm spoiling it. She like fucking dies in it. It's like, it's like the, we, we sort of wrote a weird way out for her. The is six? what the movie's about. Who's, who's I, the top five? I, I mean, several, I, w- I would put Letitia ahead of her. That's one. Okay. Honestly, well, this is bad. I would say Lake Bell's scene was more memorable than hers. <laughs> not like Bell. <laughs> I know. No, this is one of my hardest takes. So you have to go slow with me today. All right, casting director in 2013. <laughs> well, Angela Bassett got that speech, right? Yes. Yeah. Speech, oh, you know, in the speech. Yes. And, and again, she is, I think, the first ever actor nominated for um, MCU movie. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I think she's the first one. Right. So, um, and she's probably, and if I have I it my way, the last, win. so watch out for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is extra funny about that is Marvel always, and I think honestly, someone had tweeted about this, like it adds one, not really like a gravitas to a Marvel film by adding like an actor, but mm-hmm. I think at this point with all the CGI, with all the like random shit going on in these movies, and they have like, you know, new younger actors who have to sort of um, deal with all that shit. If you add like people like Angela, Kate Blanchett, you know, like if you're adding, you know, like um, I'm sure Phyllis Seymour Hoffman would have been up in one, you know, right. like if he was still alive, you know, mm-hmm. if you add these actors into it who are sort of the old guard, they sort of bring maybe sort of like a permanence to the set or something. Like it feels like it gives the other actors something to sort of act off of. But mm-hmm. I do find it funny, like at the SAG Awards <laughs> watching Angela Bassett, um, you know, the nomination for hers, like and watching the clip. And she's nominated, like, with, like, Kate Blanchett's there because she's nominated for Tar and shit. Mm-hmm. And I know she was watching that being like, well, they couldn't nominate Hella. They couldn't <laughs> nominate me for Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> well, and, and to your point about the gravitas, you know, and I think that's one thing that, um, that maybe separated Black Panther a bit from the other MCU movies. I mean, you have Forrest Whitaker. You, got a, you have an Oscar winner right there. Mm-hmm. You have Daniel Kalula, who hadn't won yet, but would win eventually. You know what I mean? And um, Angela Bassett, who's been nominated before. Um, and so you did have this 
you had this presence that made the human moments a bit more tactile than they mm-hmm. are in the rest of those sorts of movies. And I think that, I don't know, like I, I, when I heard that this was the first actor, the first performance ever um, by um, an MCU um, actor to be nominated for an Oscar, I was a little surprised because I always thought that Vin Diesel has done some great voice work. Sure. <laughs> as as Tree <laughs> or whatever the fuck his name is. You know what I mean? I was like, what? Vin Diesel didn't get nominated? Like, Definitely every year the best for this? actor named Vin. And yeah. believe me, I've ranked them. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I was going to say, uh, but then I became defensive on behalf of Angela Bassett when she lost to Jamie Lee Curtis and everything, everywhere, all at yeah. once. Are we, are we not clear that that is just fun stunt casting? Like, to me, the ideal version of that kind of performance, getting a little bit of awards traction, and he wasn't nominated for that much, but Bradley Cooper and Licorice Pizza, okay, you hire the guy, and then he's at a fucking 10, and he has like two big moments on screen. Mm-hmm. And we applaud him for stepping outside his usual box. And he's crazy. And in that case, he was playing a real life person. But Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie, it's just another person where I'm like, I, can, I think most of the other performances were better. I would, I, would, I would pick Stephanie in that movie, if anybody, to win that award. So mm. it's, it's really random because obviously she has all of the support because she's Jamie Lee Curtis. Right. You know, I was wondering, like, where does the support really come from? But truly, every generation has a Jamie Lee Curtis hit. And right. then there's the Activia, and <laughs> Laurie Strode been running from Michael Myers for like eight decades at this point. So right. <laughs> you know, like everyone has a moment. Like we have Freaky Friday, you know, like um, Trading Places, you know. Trading so places, it, yeah. people love JB Lee Curtis. So I can see it, but yeah, that role was just sort of like you know who would normally have that role in a movie. Sigourney Weaver, when she just when Sigourney Weaver pops up for five minutes in any random movie you're watching, and it's a cameo, and it's like, oh my god, they got Sigourney Weaver, but then at a certain point around that um that alien movie where she appeared again, I was like, oh, okay, enough, and I can't right. remember the name. It was wait, Dave. Oh, Dave. Oh, right. Yes, yes, Dave, yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. When, when she appears at the end, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, yeah, she's also in a, she has a couple of great uh, '90s cameos. There's a movie called Jeffrey. She's in. Yeah, uh, but she anyway, might be you're right in now, Evolution too. You know, imagine me watching that. I can't. <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah, yeah, again, it's just a stunt part. I just like the the adulation has gone on a minute and a half too long. I'm a little annoyed by it. But you're right. That was actually a provocative question on Twitter you had, which is we we act like Jamie Lee Curtis is sort of owed this. Oscar moment and it's like I, I remember her being funny in A Fish Called Wanda and I remember you know I, I've seen every Halloween movie etc but you, you've seen every Halloween you, oh, you've God, watched yeah. every Halloween well, movie yeah, I actually for someone in my generation it, it's pretty easy to have seen them because they would just play them all in a row on television Okay, so you there's would just like 30 no right and <laughs> even the extremely dubious one season of The Witch whatever I've given you've them all you've seen the Rob chance. Zombies uh, I saw the first one. That's Scout mm. Taylor Compton, right? Yeah, I've yeah. seen that. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, they're pretty... Plus, I'm a horror fan, so I've seen all of them, um, okay. unfortunately. Okay. But I will say, the also other annoying thing about the Jamie Lee Curtis win is, I don't know if it's just like, whether she's just like an old person, like sort of repeating things um, vibe, because old, like older people do that all the time. Like they'll get one thing stuck in their head and they'll continue to repeat it. Or I even have a friend who's like 28. You tell him like, he learned, he, there's one fact that he knows about each of our friends. Um, <laughs> and he will always bring that fact up. 
when you're having a conversation. <laughs> it's like, okay, we're done talking about this, but that's the one thing you remember, and you know that like you get a laugh out of it, so you'll always bring it up. But when she was up there being like, and I know you're all looking at me like, here's this Nepo baby winning. I was like, girl, that conversation was never about you, okay? It was yeah. about like Haley Bieber. <laughs> and like, right. and like Kaya Gerber's Lily Rose Depp's like if no one was having the Nepo baby conversation online and thinking Jamie Lee Curtis that's someone who's just skating by by <laughs> off of um, Janet Lee right. and um She's like, one day they're going to find out that she's a fraud. <laughs> like, come on, girl. Well, I think all those speeches at this point, like, there's, you can expect some acknowledgement of privilege. Like in Sally Field's speech, she said, mm-hmm. look, I had to fight to be an actress, but I didn't have to fight, you know, one one hundredth as hard as all these other people. So, I mean, it's a mm-hmm. little bit expected. Um, but that's mother, point. okay? Yeah. But like, <laughs> Sally Field, right. that's mother, okay? <laughs> and there's an expectation of, of like a certain cluelessness. Like, and I'm thinking of even like with Harry Styles when he gave his, you know, his speech when he won a Grammy and he said, that, you know, people from places, people like me don't usually win. And, you know, we're all thinking like, motherfuckers like you win all the time. Like, <laughs> this is, but, but obviously he was talking about his background in England, you know, coming from, you know, where he came from. Right. Um, but so I, yeah, I think that there's just a presumption of like a self centeredness. And mm-hmm. I actually expect that. Like, if, if, it, if an actor is not that way, then I just don't consider them to be very authentic. It's like, yo, you just stop. Stop trying to be humble. <laughs> stop, stop trying to be conscientious. <laughs> and just, just be yourself on it. Everyone you know, should be, be petty. Yeah. Everyone should be Matthew McConaughey's Oscar speech, where he basically started rambling that God had decided that he needed to win this. Uh, and not <laughs> and in you, a... And you don't know that's black, not true. You right? don't know that's not true. Not yeah. in a black people winning an award, being like, thank you to God. His was, no, this was preordained. It's in, it's in the Testament. <laughs> They're partners. He doesn't even have to thank him. They were in it together. And um, I'm glad you brought him up because, you know, if we're talking about stunt casting, I feel like his, his, his like, what, he, he was in a Wolf of Wall Street for, what, four minutes, maybe three scenes. And he was coked up. They probably paid him in cash. But that performance is a thing that you remember from the movie. So if you're going to do the stunt casting, do the five-minute performance thing, you have to knock it out the park like how he did. Yeah, the, um, the old, and if you want to get an acknowledgement for it, you have to knock it out the park the way that he did with Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, I would call that the Alec Baldwin and Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. Yeah, get a couple of catchphrases in there, get some rage going, you mm-hmm. know, some coke energy, some et coke, definitely you, big coke energy. As you said, um, I in fact I think most kind of indelible award show speeches have a a critical self-absorption component. Like, I think one of the greatest Oscar moments ever is when Faye Dunaway wins for Best Actress. And if you ever do that Google search of Faye Dunaway plus uh, problems, you're going to, it's going to be a long list. So just be aware you have a lot to learn. (laughs) But in her speech, the first thing she says is, "Uh, I didn't expect this quite yet. Quite yet. Which is so amazing to start a speech like, oh, you're giving me the Oscar now? I was thinking this would be like a 1979 thing. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Uh, I just recently did uh, one of our future um, 
guest on the show is going to be Michael Shulman, who uh, has this um, amazing book um, called um, Oscar Wars. Um, and we'll talk about that when we get closer to the Oscars. But um, I recently participated in his um, live show that he did at Joe's Pub. It was called um, You Like Me. And it was like a bunch of actors who were there to do speeches um, from like different award shows. And I oh, did, that's so fun. I did. I played Lee Daniels to Jordan E. Cooper's uh, Mariah Carey when they won at the um, Palm Springs International Film Festival for Precious. And I think that was one of my unexpected favorite awards. I love an award speech at an award show that, like, nobody's giving a fuck about. Uh, they, she was wasted. Uh, <laughs> she's mentioning the fact that she's wasted in it. Uh, she's like, give it up for Palm Springs. Come on, Palm Springs. They're making in-jokes. I think that is fun because it's also the way you get actors to those things is all of those awards come like right before the Oscars, like before the nomination period. And Mm. you show up to shit like that, you know, to show that you're game and that you're like in it and like you're going to like, you don't care about just the Oscar. You care about like accolades from everybody in your industry. And I think that that's just fun. Also, I mean, like, literally, I think a huge part of the Jamie Lee Curtis uh, torrent carrying her into awards wins is that she has several public speaking moments that have led up to this that we we really remember. I mean, she's, like, game to be funny and self-deprecating. So, you know, she won a real why, Housewives. why not nominate her? She'll, she you might know? say something funny on that stage. Yeah. I'm now starting to think her Real Housewives appearance was a scam to help with the Everything Everywhere All at Once Oscar campaign. So... Well, if we're talking about scams, let's talk about Halloween Kills. I'm still mad I saw it. So, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, uh, I think we could agree that the the thing that I was most happy about for the SAG and NAACP awards anyway was Zendaya returning to the red carpet. Because it's been a minute. Um, And truly, every time she comes, I would actually feel bad for other people when she comes out. Every every magazine, every Instagram is always like, Zendaya looks fucking amazing. Everybody else, pack it up and go home. And honestly, it's true. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I just saw that she negotiated. Renegotiated her deal for Euphoria, where she's making a million an episode now. Well, they so. need to pay me a million to watch that show. <laughs> <laughs> I, Zendaya I, I, making Kelsey Grammer money, though. That is, uh, that does yeah, speak to me. That, I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It does. It does. I'm looking forward to her. She is a person who could fade on way, walk up there with, when she gets her Oscar and be like, I didn't expect this yet. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because you know what's going to happen early, too. Like, yeah. Faye Dunaway is probably like 35, 36 when she won that. Whereas I mean, Zendaya I mean, we, will probably win it next year. Yeah, we got Dune. What, Dune 2? Is it Dune 2? Yeah. Is, is there a better name? Is, is it actually Dune it's, I think two? it's just Dune 2. Not even Dune the second, Part 2. The second it's Dune? Just, <laughs> not even Dune Part 2. It's just called Dune 2. Which yeah. is, Dune 2. All right, so maybe. That's really going to roll off the tongue during the press cycle. <laughs> Look who's rural, talking Dune. The, the rural drawer. Uh, but she could get nominated for Dune. Listen, if we're handing out awards for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, like the, the gates are open. You know, so <laughs> yeah. Dune Two, open season, Dune yeah. Two, Dune Two. You know, he started start the campaign right now for the day. Florence Pugh nominated for Dune Two. <laughs> Timothy Chalamet already preparing his uh, clavicle centric <laughs> pseudo menswear for us to look at. <laughs> 
All right. Well, we are excited to have you back on the show this week, Damon. Uh, and also, there's a new season of Stuck with Damon Young, which is out on Spotify. It's a Crooked and Spotify joint, a collabo, if uh-huh. you will. Um, and so we're going to chat a bit about some things that you talk about on your show. Uh, we're going to talk about athletes in film this week. Um, athletes who've made the jump to film, the ones that are good, the ones that are bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know our listeners love it when we talk about sports on Keep It. <laughs> oh, God, the authority <laughs> we bring, finally, to this topic. <laughs> Plus, we're going to introduce your Ask Damon segment, um, where listeners um, ask you questions on your podcast. Um, so the three of us are going to answer those questions. We'll see if we're as good as you at answering questions. Um, um, probably not. I'm a yeah. Leo. I answer questions by by talking about myself. I know. Have you actually heard the question, like me answering <laughs> these questions? Right. I mean, it's it's a it's a cool segment. You know, it's fun. But like, I am not good at this. Like, I would not take I would not take my advice. Well, I cannot anything. wait to bring you lower. Get ready, <laughs> except for maybe some headwear advice or something. But that's that's about it. But we'll see. It's fun. You know, I should put a disclaimer before each segment. Like, do not, do not hold him accountable like i I feel like all of like the toxic male energy of like you know what i'm not going to be accountable for anything that i do i want to kind of use that for my advice segment where (laughs) any any answer that i give he did not i did not say that i did not advise you to do that so do not use it against me if my advice makes you do some fuck shit well, that's a general keep it disclaimer, not to hold us responsible for anything that we yeah, said no. on the show. We're drunk. Okay. I mean, yeah. yeah. This is a drinking <laughs> podcast. Yeah. And also in this episode, I have a conversation with Tennis, one of my favorite bands that you've heard me mention on this show before. Uh, Elena Moore and Patrick Riley join me to discuss their new album, Pollen, and going on tour this spring slash summer. So I'm going to chat with them at one point during this episode as well. And it's a cheeky way to keep the sports theme going. So good for you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they actually play tennis on stage. Oh, that would be cute. Oh. I would watch a Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova musical. Sure. <laughs> uh, we will be right back with more Keep It. The important work of political and civic engagement doesn't just happen every two years. Vote Save America's No Off Years program is here to help you stay engaged throughout 2023's critical elections, starting with a must-win Supreme Court seat in Wisconsin. Visit Vote Save America right now to donate now to help get out the vote in Wisconsin ahead of their April election. And sign up to join our No Off Years campaign to stay in the loop about what's happening and how you can get involved via remote and in-person volunteer opportunities, targeted donations, and more. That's votesaveamerica.com. Exciting news, some brand new merch just dropped for all you Marvel and X-Ray Vision fans out there. It's a really cool X-Ray Vision Was Right t-shirt inspired by the iconic Magneto Was Right t-shirts. And it's celebrating the fact that all of Jason and Rosie's predictions are correct, obviously. Head to crooked.com slash store to get your shirt now. After being ordered by Crooked to appeal to a Midwestern audience, we found a way to talk about sports on Keep It. So, who do we believe has survived the athlete-to-actor pipeline? Well, I've got bad news for you. If you've seen 80 for Brady, 
Tom Brady could be worse. Mm. I did enjoy his interactions with Lily Tomlin. As I said in uh, a couple of weeks ago, Lily Tomlin basically is um, deranged in the film. Thinks she has a like psychic connection <laughs> with Tom uh-huh. Brady, and they have these conversations where he's in her head, and eventually <laughs> she's in his head climactically in the movie. But for as silly as it is, I did sort of believe him. But also, there's something about Tom Brady where he says everything at the same like um, monotone, like uh, pull string kind of voice. Mm-hmm. So it's not like he can ever sound great or bad because it's always in that midsection. Mm-hmm. So I'm not quite Midwestern, um, but I am Appalachian since I'm in Pittsburgh. So I do mm. have some insight about about athletes and movies. Um, I think could have been worse is the metric, right? Where you mm. where, where they should be assessed. So like Ray Allen, he got game. He could have been worse. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he could have been worse. Kevin Garnett, uncut gems. He could have been worse. Oh, um, you know what? He was really good in that movie. I, actually, I he, was he, he, he was really good. He, I, yeah. I, I'll, I'll take that back. He was really good, and I think that LeBron was good in Trainwreck. Totally. He was. You know what I mean? He he had he had good timing. He had you know good interplay with um what's his name uh Bill Hader. John Cena. Um and what I don't did he share any scenes with John Cena? John that? Cena had like a couple of moments in that movie. It's mostly him and Bill Hader. Yeah. And so uh, uh-huh. I don't. You mentioned John Cena and also The Rock. Obviously, is you know the most successful athlete to actor. You know, transition. I think wrestlers do it the best. I, but I don't consider them the. It's almost like cheating because professional wrestling is acting already. That's fair. You know what I mean? And so they already have some acting chops before they become quote unquote professional actors. So someone like The Rock, John Cena, Dave, uh, what's his name? Batista. Um, Batista. Yeah. Even Mike people. The Miz from the real world. <laughs> even Mike, even Mike The Miz. Yeah, he does no, stay no. booked. Yeah. yeah. So so those people, you know, that it's it's cheating to consider them on the same level as like a, a team mm-hmm. sport athlete. No, um, wrestling is drama club. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, like it's not the same thing as like you you did an athletic achievement based on, you know, how amazing you are. It's like, no, there's choreography, there's, mm-hmm. you know, scripted lines, there's, you know, kerfuffles backstage where one person gets too much star time and you all fight about that. I mean, this is me doing up the down staircase in 2002 with my friends. <laughs> I, I, I feel like the best, the best performance though, and this is the most underrated actor to actor, act, athlete to actor performance is Cam Neely in Dumb and Dumber, um, where he was Seabass, right? You know, who was a sociopathic, possibly serial, serial killing rapist, but he was really good at that. <laughs> All right? He was a memorable character. And also he was the stunt cast that made the movie. You know what I mean? He was only in maybe two scenes. You know, they had a callback, I think, in a sequel, uh, The Dumb and Dumber or, or whatever the fuck. It, but he, again, he did what we want stunt casting people to do. Mm-hmm. Now, I promise I've never seen Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> Very good. Um, <laughs> no, I was going to say the, th- the problem with athletes in movies is if I lay eyes on you and I recognize you, which is already improbable, but... If I, if I see an athlete in the movie, they're already coming in at a deficit for me. Again, it's a mm-hmm. stunt casting moment. So you have to prove your worth, that, you're, like you, that you have value beyond the gag of you being in the movie. It's like when you would watch like a sitcom and Dr. Joyce Brothers appears. It's like, well, I know Dr. Joyce Brothers' agent must know people on the show or something, because why does she get to do this? <laughs> this is insane that she would even be written into this program. So, yeah, I can only think of a few instances where athletes 
were exactly like like Andre the oh that's a wrestler Andre the Giant in the Princess Bride like yeah, uh-huh. perfect like take advantage of the physical thing he is we use it it's great I think LeBron James is actually one of the best examples and Alex Karras in um who just became an actor in general he was in like Victor Victoria but in Blazing Saddles mm-hmm. uh, gives a really good performance too yeah I I'm surprised what you would think about this do you have a favorite athlete in a movie. Uh, well, I mean, mine's usually like the wrestling people, you know? Yeah. I mean, I feel mm. like, you know, listen, I think a lot of them do have like the acting component, but I would say that, you know, I would say John Cena is someone who did surprise me because I feel like he's actually sort of acting and I feel like there's a lot of camp that's involved in wrestling mm-hmm. that, you know, you sort of have to strip away, you know? It's like, it's like kids who... um were Nickelodeon or Disney actors who then somehow become good actors later. You know, like you would really call that a lot of the same thing. Uh, I did like I did like Dan Marino in Ace Ventura: Pet Detective, mm-hmm. which is a movie that holds up in a politically correct fashion. If you haven't seen it recently, <laughs> another one, another one that is aged perfectly well yeah. is uh, is there something about Mary, where yeah. um, Brett Favre also stunt casting. You know, and they mention him throughout the movie, Brett, Brett, Cornfit, White Boy, Brett, Brett, Brett. And then you see, oh, it's it's Brett motherfucking Favre, you know, who was the ex. Um, and then there's also Kareem in Airplane, who, you mm-hmm. know, I, I guess broke the fourth wall or or whatever with his performance. But I um I, I think the problem, you know, and I think wrestlers kind of have their own carve out is that Actors are just too big and not big in terms of like status wise, but too physically big um, to really make that transition in a way that seems natural. Because, I mean, you know, again, you have LeBron, who is six foot eight and even the shorter, particularly with basketball players, even the shorter basketball players are still giant people are Mm -hmm. still six foot three, six foot four. And in Hollywood, you are basically Andre the Giant if you are that size. Um, and it just makes for uh, an extremely disconcerting experience when they're trying to be something other than who they are um, in real life. Totally. Oh, yeah, it's very conspicuous. Yeah, they're only like, yeah, we only get like one Elizabeth Debicki or Gwendolyn Christie, like a generation, somebody who is mm. e- extremely tall and then continues to belong on the silver screen. I was going to say about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in Airplane, that's the rare movie, and a movie that legitimately holds up extremely funny um the dialogue in that movie is designed to be said without any affect whatsoever like nobody mm-hmm. laughs in that movie nobody um is is emotional in the movie unless it's like for like, a, like johnny the gay character in it has like a couple of breakdowns or whatever but for the most part people are playing the quote-unquote drama of this uh airplane disaster really straight. So Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's monotone pseudo bad acting is completely in line with the rest of the movie and then also makes it funnier because it's supposed to be like a stodgy old disaster movie. So sounding a little um, contrived or sounding like a traditional bad actor is good acting in that movie. Agreed. Yeah. You know, another one, uh, Wilt Chamberlain, um, he was in, I forget which Arnold movie he was in where he was... uh, it was either an Arnold movie or some movie from the 80s where he was actually like a in a villain. Um and he gets defeated by the Arnold Schwarzenegger. Maybe it might have been Conan the Barbarian. 
with Will Conan the Destroyer. Yeah, Conan the Destroyer. I was cl- close. <laughs> All right, one one of the Conan something in the Conan canon, <laughs> right? Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, I you know I I think you know the best use of actors in movies is when you can allow them to be themselves where they don't necessarily have to act. You know, and to your point about Kareem and Airplane, it's like, yeah, this is, we don't need you to act. We need you to be Kareem. We need, you know, we're playing it straight. And yes, we need the audience to recognize the ridiculousness of this seven foot three person as an airplane pilot who was very obviously Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, <laughs> right? <laughs> like very obviously Kareem and is pretending not to be. Yeah, in that um, movie, he gets kind of like defrocked. He's wearing an airplane pilot outfit, and then you mm-hmm. see his uniform underneath it. It's really, really silly. Yeah. There's not, there's not many cameos like that in movies, actually. I'm gonna throw out a basketball player that we have not mentioned, uh, and no, it is not Michael Jordan, who I think, we, I think we finally now all acknowledge that he is awful in Space Jam. Um, Shaq in Shaq Kazam? is often so Shaq, in like many movies. Like, well, Sha- Shaq I feel like is Shaq legitimately is so very movies, funny. If I end up funny. seeing a clip, if I see a clip of him on ESPN, generally speaking, I'm laughing. Uh, yeah, I feel like Shaq is naturally funny, um, charismatic, and like I, he, there was a time when he was like popping up in everything. You know, like he'd pop up mm-hmm. in like scary movie. You know, he'd um, hop up like he was in that movie um, Steel, which is not good. But, uh, you know, he's like, he's fun. I think he's in What Men Want. You know, like, he's, he's fun in a movie. He's fun in commercials. Uh, he's just generally funny and fun to watch. Yeah, he doesn't take himself too seriously on screen. He takes himself a bit too seriously with NBA-related stuff. But when he removes himself <laughs> from that context and you know, gets in, gets on in front of the camera. He, yeah. He, he, he's okay. Making himself the butt of the joke. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's also a good audience member. Um, like I've seen him, you know, during a few comedy central roasts and also during like a, a couple, like Kevin Hart, um, up skits. And when Shaq is in the audience, he, he knows he's going to get joked on at some point. Someone is going to make a joke about his size, his slowness. Also, there's going to be a reference to a stick at some point. And he takes the jokes in stride. Although, well, how that's just hard when can Chelsea it... Handler is hosting? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how hard can it be to take a joke in stride when everyone's talking about how big your dick is? But anyway, um, Shaq is good. Uh, Kyrie Irving, I forgot to mention him. He had his own movie with Uncle Drew, you know, that was based off of the, the viral, you know, Sprite campaign. And he, he's also a normal size, relatively normal sized athlete. He's six foot two, which is big for a regular person but for an nba player is 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 actually tiny um definitely so shorter he than wasn't me, bad so yeah he wasn't bad as as uncle drew <laughs> there aren't um, are there aren't many female athlete performances in movies come to think of it i Ronda rousey well let me tell you something <laughs> i did see the entourage movie in which ronda rousey starred you know what she could have been worse and also that movie could have been worse and i was no Super fan I love of the, original the Entourage show. movie. It was good, right? And also, Debbie Mazar awareness is sorely lacking from this generation. So we need things yeah. like the Entourage movie to guide us. Well, I've been like, I've been rewatching Sex in the City because I just moved back to New York, obviously, and I'm like in the West Village, so I'm like having that moment. But uh, I was also realizing, like, one, Gen Z hasn't really rediscovered Sex in the City yet, um, and I'm terrified for when they do. 
Uh, because the, they are going <laughs> to drag that show to hell. One thing, it's about sex. Uh, right. Which they don't want to see. No, and it's, a lot of the jokes are problematic. But Gen Z, and also I think even millennials, have not revisited Entourage. And I know that Entourage was, you know, very misogynistic, you know, very like, you know, toxic masculinity. But let me tell you something. I thought that show was funny. And I feel like I may rewatch it at some point. Maybe I'll try that this summer and see if like it still holds up for me. Because I will say the majority of people that I would talk to about Entourage were women and gay men who watched it. And it was definitely not a show for us, made for us specifically, but we found it funny. Well, it's a show a little bit like Veep, where it's like the, the point is the viciousness of the lines. You know what I mean? In a way that you, you intuitively you think is not necessarily really a gay thing or a, a woman thing. You know, on, on Veep, besides Anna Klumsky and Julia Louis-Dreyfus, it's a show about guys. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but we do love well-honed fuck you type humor, generally speaking. I think there's a causticness that really uh, gay men and women can respond to, especially if, you know, we get to just watch it from afar. We don't have to participate in the toxicity ourselves. Yeah. Entourage, it, Entourage for me is in the boat with like craft beer, um, the, city of, <laughs> the city of Atlanta and Harry Potter on like these huge cultural <laughs> entities that I'm completely out on. <laughs> and and not and not necessarily because I tried it and had like a distaste. It's like I just when people have the entourage conversations, like entourage to me is like the the song in the club or line dancing. When it's line dancing time at the party, that's when I go to the bar. And when the, <laughs> when the entourage conversation starts, it's like okay, this is my time to go get another drink or go get some more food or something because I think I, I only watched like maybe one or two episodes of the entire show. Um, oh, also, I, I almost forgot, you know, we're talking about, you know, I guess female athletes in movies, uh, Serena Williams, Glass Onion. Onion. And also stunt casting and, um, and Glass Onion. Yeah. That was very funny. About that. Mm-hmm. It was very funny, but then I was also like, does she know what's going on in the movie? <laughs> right. Yeah. Is she complicit? <laughs> right. I want to know more. <laughs> Uh, I mean, there's also like we wish it Rob Rousey, like the bad version of that is um Gina Carano. Um before she became uh, a supervillain of the um far right, uh she was also just abysmal in Haywire. Haywire. I, 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 this will actually pertain to my keep it later. I just miss when movies were called things like Haywire, just like expecting no quality whatsoever, just stupid. You can picture the fieriness of the cover and also like plain yeah that was plain, about that's to say. Like gerard, gerard butler he's he has that mantle now <laughs> i will always posit that haywire could have been a good movie but she is so abysmal and i think that we've maybe talked about this like years ago on the show but you know when we talked about like um the the gus van sant version of psycho right right i think that we're so used to revisiting um, art um, in theater. You know, you do revivals of it. Uh, and then we're sort of doing that on TV a bit uh, with redoing some of those scripts like during like the pandemic and stuff. But um, I think that more movies should be remade. And either by a director who was sort of like really a fan of that movie, um, 
not like one that was really successful that needs to be remade, um, but something that feels like, you know, like it was maybe a mess and you want to redo something. And it's not a, ba- it's not like The Hustle, uh, which sort of like, you know, is the, sort of like a big ass remake of um, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. But like, mm. you're really just redoing this film and maybe fixing something that didn't work. Do Haywire with someone who can act and do the stunts. <laughs> And it's she a better was, movie immediately. She, I, I agree. I, I would also like to th- see things recasted. Just have the same movie, same director, same everyone behind the scenes, but just have a different cast. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know? Right. Why um, change it up stylistically at all? Even yeah, though I think what you're talking about, Ira, the best ideal case is the Ocean's Eleven remake. Because yes. it's like you watch the first one mm-hmm. and you want the glamour of Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., all those people. But the movie is slow, and the movie is just not as good as you want it to be, which is almost an exact quote from George Clooney. And so when you remake it, it's like, all right, well, let's make the movie we wanted to see, that we thought mm-hmm. we saw the first time, you know? And that is an artistic reason to remake a film, you know? It's not some dumb remake that, you know, basically a studio is like, we want to cash in on this property, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I will always say that even though um, it's not very good, I appreciated why Jonathan Demme wanted to remake Sherrod into The Truth About Charlie. Yeah. No, because Sherrod is so fabulous and like two, two of the greatest stars of all time. A great conceit. Probably top five best non-Hitchcock Hitchcock movies, which is a mm-hmm. category I think about all the time. You know, movies like, uh, like Gaslight or something like that. Yeah, pardon me for always calling it Sherrod. I know. Oh, yeah, you hate an accent. I'm simply <laughs> blown away that you would make the attempt. Yeah. Um, I think maybe one more actor that I want to throw out there. <laughs> oh, here we go. I guess you look like you're about to throw up. You're like sick with yourself already. Caitlyn Jenner. In what? Can't stop the music. Oh my god! Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, no, no, wait, Damon. Do you know about this movie? I I, I have an awareness. Of it. Okay. <laughs> yes. Well, the village people once upon a time were thespians for about 25 minutes before we canceled the fuck out of that. And <laughs> the movie is directed by uh, Nancy Walker of Rhoda fame and also features Steve Gutenberg, very sexy young Steve Gutenberg. And oh, wow. there's a ton of roller skating in this movie. It's a, a sort of disco themed romp in New York. It's very aimless. It's one of these movies that's like doing, trying to do 25 different things. Somehow not uh, as gay as Xanadu. Which is also right. a disco movie. Was this yes. was this was this pre or post Police Academy Gutenberg? This would be beforehand. Before, okay. But also like right right at that moment, like right at that as that's about okay. to jump off. Um, but it's just the I just I can't believe people thought oh the village people these personalities were so obsessed with it's like girl I don't know their first names. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a California raisins movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which they're doing for a comeback, actually. Like, wh- why aren't people still obsessed with California raisins? Because I personally, I don't know if you had family members, Damon, or someone who were into them, but I want to tell you that my grandmother collected those California raisins figurines. The, the home was full of California raisins and Betty Boop. Yeah, I, I was also out on the, on the California uh, Raisins era. I was in, I was, I, I think at that time I was in the Garbage Pell Kids. Sure. And, okay. and, and, and also, too, where is the Garbage Pell Kid movie? 
Yeah. Also, How just, come that hasn't happened yet? I mean, we got the got the Ninja Turtles, we got the Transformers, we got everything else from that era. So where are the garbage pail kids? California raisins, oh. though, that was a shockingly huge hit. Correct me if I'm wrong. They are simply raisins that know Motown songs. That is what they yeah. are. It's, yeah. That They're just, just feels- sitting there singing the Big Chill soundtrack for children. <laughs> and it feel and it feels I don't remember how racist it was, but just hearing that again. And also the composition, the physical composition of a raisin, it just feels racist. It just feels extremely <laughs> extra racist to 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 have that. I mean, what I and I do not remember. I remember the ads, like in a, I guess in a theoretical sense. But was there a controversy about these raisins singing Motown songs? Did anyone give a shit about you that would back think then? There would be, yeah. But like we just put it right alongside the the Garfield Saturday morning cartoon and let it fly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Shout out to the eighties. I can't remember any particular like sort of like scandal from them. I mean, I feel like I only ever saw the California raisins figurines at black people's homes. So um, maybe it was one of those quote unquote controversy things. The same way that like whenever I visit um, family members like in the south, or whatever, they still have like the racist long jockeys. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like yeah. yes, those are racist, but for some reason, my great grandmother collects them. And they're in the front yard. So maybe (laughs) California raisins were, you know, the Sambos of the 80s. That's so beautiful, Ira. Thank you for putting it that way. It was. It was poetic. Coming up, I sit with one of my favorite bands, friends of mine, Tennis, to talk about their latest album, Pollen. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see... Footprints in the sand. That was when I carried you in my barefoot dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite Lux home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. 
Don't miss out on Barefoot Dream's soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. (laughs) Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. (laughs) Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Our guests today are an innovative and genuine duo who have been guiding us on a musical journey for almost 13 years now. Um... I'm huge fans of them, um, friends with them. I'm excited to have them on Keep It, finally, to discuss their sixth album, Pollen. Welcome to Keep It, Elena Moore and Patrick Riley of Tennis. Hey. Thank you. Hi. Hey. What, what an intro. Uh, you know what? I had to, I had to, I love doing intros for our guests, but like, I was excited to do this one. I'm excited Aww. to have you on. Thanks. Also, we could have done this in person. <laughs> well, I'm in New York. I know, I know but I feel like we're just always uh, near each other. I know, I know. Um, well, speaking of that, um, it's nice to listen to the album in headphones, mm-hmm. um, like at home now, because the first time I heard it was at your house for like yeah, a listening. Uh, listening party. Um, tell me a bit about how um, you even started doing um, things like that. Because I feel like one thing that I loved when I went to listen to the album was having your friends there, like musicians you've worked with. Like mm-hmm. it had this whole like community, you know, music, artist vibe. And I feel like that's something that, you know, not everybody gets to have. Mm-hmm. I think you're seeing like our Cowtown roots coming through <laughs> where it's just like we, I don't know, whenever we finish something, we don't know how to like. Uh, yeah, we want to do something to signify that it's real and that it happened. And I feel like that's, you have to do something that's like public. And I guess shows are obviously a huge thing, but it's so different because you're so isolated. You're just like on stage. So yeah, that experience of sharing it with friends. And yeah, I guess that's like just not really our energy to like do like a fancy party thing. So yeah, we just started having people come over to our house. But we're also like reading body language like crazy to try and like figure out what <laughs> songs are resonating Yeah, we with try people. to test. And that's actually the appeal of having babies because I'm sure there's babies at this listening party. Yes. And like, you know, they still have that like intuitive connection, primordial connection with music. So we stand in the back and see like, which one did the baby start moving to? And we're like, okay, that's probably the single. <laughs> <laughs> and this album is so much fun too and i feel like it's different um from 
you know, Cape Dory, your first one, which is celebrated mm-hmm. its 12th anniversary this year. Uh, tell me a bit about your musical journey, I guess. Sort of what expi- what inspired you to create Cape Dory in the first place? You know, people still refer to you as sort of like this beachy sort of yacht rock, like dream pop group. But I feel like you've evolved so much past that. And this album, specifically, Pollen, um, sounds a bit different from even those early vibes. Yeah, I think, I mean, when we started out, we were both like music school dropouts, and we kind of like shunned music at that point in our lives. We never thought we would be making music for a living. Um, So I think most of Cape Dory was like accidental success, where we were making music in our apartment at the time. And just one thing led to another well, and it snowballed yeah, it into started with like a obsession with girl groups yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. And yeah, music was like not present in our lives at the time. And then we, we like, I heard like a Phil Spector produced song one night in a bar and I was asking Pat, I'm like, I wish modern music could sound like this. And he was like, I actually understand how that was recorded. And I didn't know that he had that background. It was really interesting to me. And so we kind of set an intention of like experimenting with that and Cape Dory came from that. But that was definitely meant to be a home hobby, which I might as well say for the first time ever on the record, that is why our band is called Tennis. I mean, the name has some meaning, but this was not meant to be like our career path for like 12 years. It was like a one time, like fun project that we did at home. Like we were also painting at night and I'm the worst painter. Our paintings are disgusting. Um, So we were like painting and writing music together with like no expectations. And now tennis is like the creative moniker of our lives. Um, I'm, I'm glad we didn't choose like a worse name, but you know, if people ask about that, I'm like, you know, I don't have a great answer for that. But band names are weird, though. They don't. They are weird. They're great for a minute, and then sometimes they if get bad. If you think about them too much, get, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was kind of the beginning of everything. And since then, honestly, it's been like a musical journey through time, like starting with like the Brill building songwriting, mm-hmm. like even like Carol King and all of that, and just kind of working your way through time. And also, since it started off with an interest in recording and production, that's just naturally evolved from like, one ribbon mic to mm-hmm. tape yeah we would like study to- producers throughout the eras mm-hmm. and kind of just like i don't because i was a engineering major in college for a short minute um but also thanks to my dad for introducing me to recording at a very young age um i've just i, I feel like it's for us together we like will get very interested in an engineer or producer and just kind of dissect their whole career and kind of see like you know what things they did to evolve what things they did to you know like capture sound in a new and exciting way and as we've been learning about those techniques it's kind of been naturally influencing our sound yeah mm-hmm. and in, in the same way that this, that music has like that natural cultural progression like just responding to each movement in time um i feel like that's kind of dictated the evolution of our records like we moved from like that very like reverby surfy sound to getting into that more like drier 70s production and now on this record you know we have like a little bit of a toe into the 90s but still um i really liked how the 90s was obsessed with the 60s so -hmm. that's how we're trying to kind of like find our way to like thread yeah because i think at the end of the day we both think that the best music was written in the 60s Mm -hmm. well i mean the phil specter of it all too uh, yeah, we just, we just still love girl groups. I mean, we still just like we put on the Shirelles album last night for, you know, kind of as a way to like, remember our 
past of, you know, that being our number one influence. And, yeah, and uh, it's it like, still holds up. It's kind of silly. I mean, it's like a that's baby. It's you, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Where did you Where did you hear that that inspired you to like start doing that first album? Because I know that I first maybe I heard it as a kid, but I first heard that song like really resurfacing in the culture. I think it was because of um, Tarantino's like Death Proof. Oh yeah, I loved that. Um, yeah, we heard it at a bar in Marathon, Florida. Um, after when we were living on our boat and having that like initial sailing trip after college, um, we heard it then and it was like a very magical night for us. And, um, but yeah, I was actually for baby it's you. If anyone goes and listens to this, there's actually like an obnoxiously loud Farfisa solo that's mixed so loud. It hurts your ears. And for some reason, it's so endearing and charming, like the bad mix of an incredible song is like <laughs> so heartwarming. I don't know why. Um, so that's like, that was like something actually, that was like one of the things that actually made us love the song the most. Absolutely. <laughs> um, speaking of, by the way, also side note, because you mentioned Phil Spector. Um, when I come back to LA, there's a friend I know who is... Um, now renting out the house where Phil Spector's wife died. So oh uh, you can have wow. dinner parties there. Whoa. Also, Phil Spector's terrible person. I mean, awful, yeah. awful person, but like, wall us out. Can we please just say that he's <laughs> a yeah, horrible yeah, person? Yeah, for the record, we don't, we don't condone or like him one bit. <laughs> I think Lewis and I have like praised Phil Spector enough that people get that we either think he's awful and just love him or maybe we just love him. Maybe we condone murder. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I can't speak for Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> it's our cow- cowboy culture that we have. <laughs> um, who would be some of, I guess, your musical influences that you would say would surprise people that um, inspire you um, or maybe even inspired this album? This is, Elena's gonna, th- she has all this. All mine are like so like boringly safe. They're just like, oh yeah, <laughs> you listen to quote unquote good music. He's <laughs> just like the cool guy. And I am like, I love, I love everything. I literally love everything. Um, I, I, what, well, but some like weirder things that you might not have thought influenced, especially stuff we were listening to when we made this record was, um, but of course, Pat showed me this, but Life Without Buildings. Have you ever mm-hmm. listened to them? No. It's amazing. Were they Scottish? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. And I feel like they only Scottish had like one or, or two records in the 90s, but it was like talk singing, like stream of conscious, like, practically a Gertrude Stein poem um, nonsense over just like a really amazing band. Um, And that was really amazing. And we also listened to um, some of like My Bloody Valentine and um, some country, like I really love Bobby Gentry. Mm, But also, I also, if you were the first person introduced to me, uh, Sisters with Voices, and we still just like... Yeah, (laughs) SWV. We still like, even for the song... I love uh, that you just said Sisters with Voices, though. Yeah, I know. Do you you hear it, though? He's so proper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But like Hotel Valet, like I feel like we're always chasing, chasing the like SWV sound, and that's how it comes out, is in a song like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely felt like more of like some R&B influences on this one. And SWV, SWV is always a great place to go. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of valet, 
um, which I fucking adore. I think I said that when um, I first listened to it. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about the story behind that one, because I feel like that was an interesting one about the origin of even your relationship. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're kind of realizing, too, it's also the origin of the, like, first uh this is just a can of worms but the the <laughs> we did we lived on a boat after college and uh yeah i i worked i got obsessed with this idea of buying a boat after college and i just worked overtime i worked graveyards at this valet place and my whole entire like 4 years of college is just bookmarked with nonstop working at uh this you know as so, a valet yeah so the first time we ever met um I was working, I was opening at the only Jewish deli in Denver called Zadie's. <laughs> and I was working the opening shift at 6 a.m. And Pat had just gotten off of his graveyard and I served him his breakfast, but we didn't meet. And but then, that was, I did remember her very mm-hmm, vividly. Yeah. Then we had a, then we had a class together like the next semester. And when he came in and he saw me, he remembered me from bringing him his plate. Um, I know probably my hair my hair was the clue the hair is very memorable Mm -hmm. I love how I also love how um watching I mean it's so exciting watching like your popularity with each album sort of grow too and I loved all the memes with this like with your past recent music uh have you seen the ones like comparing your hair to like ice spice indie ice spice indie ice spice yes it's like the most like (laughs) frequently tweeted thing at us and it's i love it i'm i I, it's really funny (laughs) um but yeah i that was how we first met and it actually it was like kind of a slow friendship because Pat had this insane schedule of working the graveyards for like the first like six months Mm -hmm. that we knew each other. Um, But yeah, it was like, there's one of those, I feel like we kind of believe in determinism and it felt like we were supposed to meet, um, not like destiny, but like determinism. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. I actually just felt like it was just going to happen and the universe kept having our paths cross over and over and over. Yeah, I mean... One, I mean, that's a very romantic story. Uh, and I love that you've been able to like depict it on the album. And I'm so interested in the idea of both of you being two people who would sort of like were music majors, sort of like dropouts, but, but like had this like interest in music that was sort of dormant. And like, how did like you two, I guess, reawaken it in one another? Mm. I think, I mean, going back to hearing Baby It's You, I, I, I know we kind of gloss over this, but it really, really reinvigorated our interest in music. It was like hearing the song, uh, like was a rebirth moment where we're, we found interest again. And I actually like got my guitar out of my mom's, uh, you know, what her attic or something. (laughs) Yeah. We were actually really, really shy to show each other our musical past or abilities. It just wasn't something that we were, it just wasn't a part of our life at the moment. So I had never heard Pac play guitar. And I actually saw he had a guitar in his closet once when we were dating. And I was like, no, I don't need to hear you play like Smoke on the Water or Satellite by Dave Matthews and like show how you can hammer on. Um, so I was just like, we're not, <laughs> I don't need to hear you play. Um, but then for me, I didn't want to play because I had already had so many like failed bands at that point and like mm-hmm. failed interests in music. So for me, it was kind of like a sign of, failure to me and I never wanted to like 
revisit it again. Yeah. And I didn't, I wasn't really interested in singing because I had felt like it had been my identity as a kid. My dad's a pastor and I grew up singing in church and it was, it was a very like amazing formative time in my life, but I felt like it was the only thing I was valued for. And when I went to college, um, everyone wanted me to study music and just be vocal performance major. And I felt like no other aspect of me as a human being was like valued or cultivated, especially, especially my mind. Mm -hmm. And in church still, I feel like in general, I have no problem saying this, women are more of a like set dressing, you know, like I could sing in church, but I wasn't like teaching or speaking or, you know what I mean? Like there was, Mm -hmm. I wasn't writing the songs or none of that. And I just felt like that wasn't valued. And I had to go through a huge differentiation of that where I was like, you know, I ended up becoming a philosophy major as far, I tried to go as far away as I could. And so um, to like find out what else I had as a human being to offer the world other than just singing. What I'm also interested in and what our listeners will find very funny is that um, I remember the one time I asked you, I was like, because I got your phone number and I was like, wait, who am I texting? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And then you were like, Pat doesn't have a phone. Like, mm-hmm. you just use yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wondered, Pat, so, like, how do you consume, like, the news and, like, even consume, like, media and things? Like, are you just, are you reading the newspaper? Um, I, my uncle uh, just has a Facebook page that I'll, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I'm honestly, like, not that connected to the news. Yeah. Yeah, it's mostly, I mean, Elena uh, reads the news, and so I <laughs> will get it from her. Yeah, I yeah. tell him what I think he should know. Pat mm-hmm. really doesn't consume any media. He's never had social media as long as I've known him. Oh, wow. But, yeah, and actually once in college, he and his friends were having a party, and he convinced three of his friends to throw their phones away. <laughs> and he actually <laughs> threw it off like a six-story window. I feel window so bad about this now. Because, and broke uh, their phones. Like, it, they all immediately got phones the next day because yeah. they're like, what, was, what were we thinking? <laughs> Sorry, Andy, Greg, Scott. and Trevor. Oh, it's, I thought <laughs> yeah. Scott did too, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm a bad influence. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I'm such like a... Uh, you can say it. You're a Luddite. I'm, yes, I'm a Luddite, but I also am just like such a busy body with like just stuff. Like just, I feel like I'm like fixing a guitar pedal or like... Uh, repainting a wall or I don't know, just stuff like that. Cause I was, um, after I was working as a valet at that hotel, I was a handyman at a art museum. Mm-hmm. And I guess that is just who I am deep down. It's just, uh, I'm just a handyman and I need to just work on little projects. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you also, I feel like you too also like you busy yourself with like reading and consuming other things yeah. too because like you i mean the first time we had like dinner you two recommended two books to me mm-hmm. um one was late fame which was fantastic uh where'd you discover this book first oh oh actually Andrea gave it to us no right? no i found it okay. um before we went on a sailing trip actually to write yours conditionally mm-hmm. i did like a deep dive into all these like like a literary editor's recommendation lists. Mm-hmm. And I found, I and I like to do that to find tons of books and I'll order like 10 and we take them on the boat and we read them all at once with like no notion of what it will be. Mm-hmm. And Late Fame was like the by far and away winner of that it's, like, I think list. every artist needs to read that book because it, it just, we've all, especially now that Elena and I have done this for almost 15 years or something, I feel like it is 
the most exemplary uh, life of an artist, like like where it just shows you the ups and downs. You can think you're on top, but you're really on the bottom. And it's humbling and humiliating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really, really just puts you in your place. <laughs> yeah. uh, which is appropriate for German literature. Uh, you know? Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, I read, I do things. Yeah, I try and stay off my phone. I actually like the phone and social media and just honestly most technology things like ruin my ability to create music, ruin my ability to like stay concentrated on like uh, little stuff that we need done for the band. Mm. I'm just not, I can't juggle that stuff. My brain can't handle both. Ira, this is the first time we've talked about the album with anyone. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. it's the first interview. So I was actually thinking about it today because I was like, any questions that you ask me about a song or anything, it'll be the first time time I've ever answered it. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, that's so exciting. (laughs) I mean, I'm so excited to even talk about your music with you, you know? So, you know, I've been such a fan for years. All right. Test me. Test me <laughs> on pollen. Ask me anything and give me a test because I've never have answered it. Uh, let's see. Uh, well, one, the name pollen. Okay. Test number one. Yeah. Okay. This will be the first time I've answered it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, okay. So anyone who knows me or anyone in my family knows that pollen is like um, Satan to us. We're all <laughs> so allergic and there's like whole family threads about like pollen count that day. About, mm. Like how much their, of, their lives are truly impacted by it. Yeah. It's pretty ridiculous. So I, the very first song, the first lyric I wrote for this album was you point to the trail where the blossoms have fallen, but all I can think of is pollen fucking me up. <laughs> and how I can't even just enjoy one single moment of beauty without immediately spinning out about like how this is going to impact me negatively. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was like the very first emotion and thought behind the record. But, and then, yes. Yeah, the more we talked about that too, the idea of like looking at something beautiful, but then feeling pain or like it it producing a painful quality inside of you. It's mm-hmm. uh and also the know, power of something really profound. small, whether it's like a particle or a moment or a choice or a relationship, and it's like long-lasting effect on you, mm-hmm. um, felt also like kind of a, a significant theme in the writing. Yeah, I mean, even so, just them- thematically, you know, like I feel mm-hmm. like you started your career with, um, you know, like falling back in love with music and it was about the time you spent on the boat and like this you know it's sort of like it's sort of like an arc almost because this feels like the album where you know we get backstory on how you two met and it feels like really just sort of a beautiful culmination of a story Mm -hmm. this is the most internal album i think lyrically that you've ever written Mm -hmm. yeah i i actually set a goal to be more personal and more detailed because I used to kind of hide. I've realized I was kind of hiding a bit behind abstraction um, to like make myself feel more protected, I guess. So would you say that maybe even some of your um, other albums were just sort of like um, you were thinking about sort of things and maybe just sort of like uh, not really going that introspective? Well, I would start with a very personal idea. um, And then as I was putting words to it, I would choose the word that was intentionally more vague. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just so it would be like still a little bit more mine. 
um, than the world's. Um, but then I just challenged myself to do the opposite with this record. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's so interesting to hear too, because I just feel like, um, I feel like one of my favorites of yours, like Modern Woman, mm. feels like a very personal song. I remember when I saw you at Red Rocks, you were even introduced to this, like it was about how you'd had, you had stopped talking to a friend for a while. Mm. And then that's what this song was about. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I think that was like my first um, toe in the water of being that personal. Mm -hmm. that, and... that was definitely the first personal song. We actually like toyed with it not even being on the album for a minute because we're like oh this doesn't like fit the picture of tennis and then we're like they obviously decided against it because it's uh, one of the best songs on that record <laughs> yeah i was also really i was afraid yeah that it might be like alienating because it's like so um honestly i guess i do struggle sometimes with worrying um obviously this is so much less of an issue now that we have like the Phoebe Bridgers of the world and obviously mm -hmm. Taylor Swift, but there was a minute where I would worry about something that was like so specifically my experience would be alienating to other people because, you know, the female perspective is not a universal perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that that um, is, I feel like that has been pretty much um, obliterated culturally. I yeah. feel like no one is really. But our band that way also anymore. was started during like the death of emo music. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and now that emo is coming back. Uh, I feel like it is Fall Out Boy is back. For, They're going yeah. on tour. Yeah. So yeah. I think I'm, there's I'm been okay an emo resurgence. Yeah. So yeah. uh no, that's truly one of my favorites. And I feel like everyone has sort of had an emotion like that, you know, like a falling mm -hmm. out with someone that you want to fix. Yeah. Uh and that's the beauty of being an artist, right? You can at least try and fix it yeah. with your art, you know, with your lyrics, with a story, with a song. Absolutely. They're, they're friends now, by the way. Yeah. It oh, good. Yeah, yeah, that friendship was repaired yeah. through the song. Through the song. Uh, did great you tactic. send this did you send the song to them or no, did they she, hear no, it? No, that would be too she desperate. Okay. But, um, <laughs> no, I did not be like, hint, hint. Um, no, actually a mutual friend showed it to her and then she wrote me a letter. And that was that. Oh, yeah. I love that. That's that's like mm -hmm. a beautiful story, you know. <laughs> um, more people should do things like that. Maybe I'll do something like that. Um, also, lastly, would there be any song of yours that people would that listeners would be surprised that like you were like this completely doesn't work live? And then also, are there like since you know music so well um and are always digesting it are there sort of like songs that you know that like you love by maybe like another artist or something that you're like i would have loved to do like a cover or something of that but you're like this does not sound good live or at least like mm -hmm. with us playing it yes yes yeah. that's a great question um well, I think one example of a song that we really want wanted, we did play it live, but we were never very happy with it, was um, the song My Emotions Are Blinding, which was mm. off of Yours Conditionally. And that was one of the singles, so we were like, we need to play this live. <laughs> and it was okay, but it just felt like a little bit flat for us without all the production. So we ended up completely rearranging it um, to something that it's feels like more ballady almost now, and it weirdly well now it almost sounds more. like a Todd Rundgren yeah or Carol King song. It's very different, um, and uh, we only do it this way live, and it actually feels like the way the song was meant to be written the first time. Mm -hmm. Oh, another really good example is the song "Bad Girls." Mm -hmm. um, we knew when we wrote that that we it was really special. And we re-recorded it like four times with two different producers. 
And it never felt like the perfect, like we were capturing the song correctly. Yeah, I still don't think mm -mm. the version we settled on is correct. Like we do at some point need to re-record it. Uh, well, because now the correctly. way we do it live is just mm -hmm. no, it's just Pat playing guitar and me singing a true ballad. And we're like, that's what it was supposed to be. But we kept mm -hmm. forcing it to be a fully arranged song with drums, bass, whatever. And it just now in hindsight, mm -hmm. we realize so live, we do it the way that it was meant to be recorded mm -hmm. i feel yeah. like 10 minutes uh 10 years is yeah. my favorite of your songs Aww. and i love the live version um the sort of slower ballad yeah. um that's the yeah. one i listen to the most uh. oh good and that's the way that worked better because yeah. yeah that was another song that we tried to do at the album version we noticed like, this that, does not work yeah anytime elena's in like her very very like upper register voice we noticed that like you can't have a lot of instrumentation muddying up uh that pretty voice Oh. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so like, yeah, for a song like that, it just needs as much room as possible. Mm -hmm. But actually, we were listening to, um, I don't remember, it was like a podcast, but I was talking about how like there's different um, approaches to songwriting and how like Leonard Cohen would never stop tweaking the songs like after it was on record, that didn't mean that it was like done, um, mm -hmm. like cooked, he would just keep tweaking and tinkering with things live until it evolved forever and hallelujah was an example of that how that song was just like never finished um and i actually really loved that idea of that and that's been very liberating to me where i feel like um we can we have permission to just keep evolving the songs live yeah i love that you know i mean it's not in a um changing the album all the time the way like kanye did uh, <laughs> but it's <laughs> yeah. more of like a it's more of like you know even thinking like of playwrights like edward albee is sort of like you know like changing the changing dialogue or updating mm -hmm. things like after new productions each year and so i think that i like ways that art can be sort of a living thing yeah, yeah. absolutely and i it's been a good for me to change my perspective because i used to think about a recorded piece of music like a painting it's mm -hmm. like unalterable but it's been it's actually been really helpful for me to think about it as yeah living and fluid okay which is also lastly which is also so weird to me because when i was just in Milan, uh, and I was looking at, um, you know, sort of like marble statues and things like that, uh, a thing I never really thought of was you're looking at pieces and, and, you know, there's like the placard there that's telling you where this, what year this is from, etc. So many of those pieces were like, oh, this head was removed like in this century and like a different piece was put yeah. on top of it. Oh, so, you wow. know, the idea that like so many of the like even like marble statues or things that we have from like ancient Greece, Rome, Egypt, wherever, were sort of like modified um, mm -hmm. in their own time or even centuries later because something was destroyed or something else was added to it. So uh, a lot of art, even things that you think are sort of permanently done, were actually altered. Um, yeah. After that's so cool. I love to hear that. Yeah. Next, the next thing that I want to reimagine for live is the song "Runner." Actually, yeah, that needs a it, for that one's uh, a little. Yeah, again, yeah, I, I sing in this register. really high, like yeah. witchy voice, which I yeah. very deliberately chose for the song on record. But live, don't want to hear me trying to power. sing that at home. <laughs> <laughs> That's your like highest. It's my <laughs> that highest. Yeah, like live, it just needs more meat on it. So yeah, I'm gonna. I've been working on that. That'll be the next thing to be modified. Okay, well, I can't wait. Um, <laughs> also, congrats. I mean, this album is great. Uh, I told you. you that already, but you know, 
I, and I'm sure Keep It listeners have heard me talk about you both so much. But if you are new to tennis uh, from this interview, listen to Pollen and then listen to the rest of their albums. Like, you're great. Oh, thank, <laughs> thank you. Ah, thank you for being here. We're so happy to be here. My only, I just wish we could have spent some time gossiping, but that's not really our role as guests. <laughs> no, no. Please don't make me do that. <laughs> Sorry. He won't know who anybody know. is. Actually, say. when we do listen to Keep It, I have to pause and tell him who every single person is that you're talking about. <laughs> well, you should also follow at Keep It Stands on Twitter. Okay. Uh, which it's wild that I have a we have a Stan account, but what they do is um they take mostly every pop culture reference that we make in an episode and you know find like a corresponding link or tweet or the video or song or whatever, and that's helpful for some people. Oh, that can be Pat's primer to pop yeah. culture. Yeah, I still love. I I literally did a spit take when I don't you you and Lewis were talking about some artists and used the expression. Sounded like a calculator being thrown down a hallway or flight of stairs. And I actually did a spit take in the car. So believe it or not, for me not understanding the cultural illusions that you might dish out, it still produces extreme joy for me. Uh, uh, Louis will be happy to hear that. Uh, Yeah, I mean, even like I remember like one of my first forays into pop culture, like really thinking about it like sort of seriously academically was reading like, Chuck Klosterman, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. Yeah. And just the yeah. idea that me even reading that, and I'm like, well, I'm not, you know, um, uh, Gen X um, like him, you know, and like don't understand all these references, but that's why there's footnotes. Yeah. And then like mm-hmm. even the footnotes and like, you know, like Infinite Jess, which I'll finish someday. Uh, you <gasps> yeah, know, it's like going, going, back, going back and forth. I love a, I love a footnote in mm-hmm. a book of essays. So. Me too. Yeah. Uh, all right. <laughs> On that note. Yeah. <laughs> The album Pollen is in stores now, and Tennis is embarking on their tour to support the album, so go and get those as well. When we're back, our Ask Damon segment. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Bettys.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S dot com. I live by routines. Especially my same-day delivery routine was shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com. As hard as this is to admit, like Sway, Lewis and I don't have the answers. <laughs> Oh, you need to not say that again. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. wow. but luckily, he sometimes had the answers, wow. I feel. Wow. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Serena Alshul had the answers more often. This oh, way. God, do I? You can't just say that name. I love her too much. Just the uh, the the utter. I've already used the word monotone, but like it's not even monotone. But she would she would basically mutter the news at us. <laughs> uh, but luckily, our guest host does. We have a special segment today called Ask Damon, where we take your questions, your queries, your quizzes, and we ask Damon to judge you. So we've got a few questions here. Uh, Uh, And we'll see what Damon has to say. Um, We'll see if it lines up with what Lewis and I have to say. Yeah, Um, the correct answer, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, none of these (laughs) questions are about why um, Haley Bieber and Selena Gomez are feuding online this week. (laughs) I saw somebody post about that with the quote tweet, the two most boring human beings alive. And I had to say, (laughs) I... It's like a canceled one season WB drama. It's like, yeah, oh, right. what are they fighting about each week? Ever, They're fighting over Justin fuck. Bieber? Yeah. <laughs> His tour was canceled today because no one was even fighting over Justin Bieber tickets. Is that why? <laughs> He's like not in demand as a concert thing? I don't, I don't, think, he was, he, I don't think he was selling out stadiums. Oh, wow. Hmm. Anyway, question number one. Do you have suggestions for managing social anxiety when needing to mingle with others, particularly people you don't know well? I mean, my my immediate answer is drink, um, be intoxicated. Um, that, Absolutely. That, that's, that helps me. <laughs> As someone who has struggled with anxiety, with social anxiety, you know, I, it, it helps to have a little bit of a buzz when I'm in a room. Um, but... I, there's no real way to get around being anxious in public spaces if you're the, if you're that type of person. I think the best thing to do is to try to curate spaces to your best of, to the best of your ability. So you're in spaces where people know who you are. You're in spaces where you know that you, you know that you can escape if you if you need to. You know. Um, but this is a tough one because, again, there's no easy remedy to alleviate that aside from intoxication, which, again, I, I said at the beginning, do not do not take my answers. Like, I don't want someone who is sincerely thinking about this to go out and just start drinking because I've I'm 44 and I have, you know, I, I have learned over a lifetime how much I need to drink in order to be in public, in order to be good with people. So I don't want someone to just start doing that today. Sounds very when a man loves a woman. Yeah. You know, (laughs) you're on the top of a car. (laughs) I do not drink. Um, I'm somebody who, uh, I guess in certain social situations, I can find them to be tense. But I think you said something that actually is important, which is, escape whenever i'm surprised when you're at a house party and it's just like a ton of noise first of all i don't deal with like a noise quotient particularly well after a certain amount of time i just need time to not think about anything or not speak or not be giving output um or even just standing on the other side of like a long-winded anecdote which i've said several times in the show is my least favorite thing people who don't know when to get to the end of a story but um i think something i like doing and this feels like very dorky and very like trust fall oriented camp exercise. I like having like an honest icebreaker question that you are curious about. Something I've uh, brought up before on the show is literally just asking people, what is your one favorite song? 
Just ask it because like th- whatever it is, you're probably going to have heard of it. It's something they can probably put on right then. You know, it's a conversation you'll want to have, you know, and you can disagree, agree. It just, I think it naturally leads into a fruitful conversation. I, and also one time uh, we asked this question to a friend of mine and he spent all party thinking about it. And then he came back with, I think it's work, bitch. Imagine having the entire American songbook at your disposal and you chose Work Bitch by Britney Spears. Brainworms are affecting the gay community every fucking day. That's what okay. you need to know. Okay, first of all, that is Hal Prince's greatest work. <laughs> so, um, You want a Maserati? Hal. <laughs> I love a question like that. Uh, I like an icebreaker. I was, I was recently at um, a dinner and I have a friend who is, um, he's one of those people, he's like genuinely curious about what people think about certain things. So like even asking a question like, what do you consider a celebrity is? You know? And it's like mm. talking about like micro celebrities, big celebrities, you know, like what the definition between celebrity and famous. He asked that at a dinner recently. Mm. And mm. everyone had like a different answer. And it was nice being at a dinner party again where we weren't just talking about the same shit we always talk about. Like I was getting, and it was also with new people. So I was getting to know them by going back and forth on a question. And I think that there's a reason why icebreakers sort of exist, you know? Like, if it's a dinner situation, if it's a party, something like, if you're around a group of people who you might not know, asking a question like that will always get someone to sort of step out of their comfort zone a bit, you know? And you can respond to people um, back and forth, um, you know, and that's how you get to know someone. I think also what's nice is having a topic to talk about that isn't just, say, the news, mm-hmm. where like people can feel a little bad for not being as informed or feeling like, you know, or th- feeling like necessarily they're going to disagree with whoever they talk to if, you know, if there's differing political views going on, things like that. Just in ha- uh, this way, I wish more stand up comedy was about pop culture because we are all constantly consuming it and it's, it's something we have in common. You know, mm-hmm. it bothers me. Yeah, I, 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 and to your point, I think, you know, just staying, I, when people, you know, people who deal with anxiety sometimes, you know, in, in an effort to alleviate it, you perform, you perform extroversion, right? Mm. And it comes off as inauthentic, it comes off as try hard, or corny sometimes because you could sense that, oh, this is a person who was trying to perform and they're, you know, and they're over, they're overcorrecting for, you know, what they believe to be a deficit. And the, 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 Best thing I, I one of the best things to remember is that it's not a deficit. That's just who you are. Like if you are more introverted, if you are anxious and and you know in these public spaces, that's fine. Like that's not necessarily a, a thing that you have to change. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like now if if it's too now if it's something that you have to do and you are paralyzed with anxiety, that's one thing. But if you feel some anxiousness, you know, when in a new environment, like that is okay, right? And I think that. You know, uh, another strategy too is to lean into that. Mm-hmm. You know, lean into that anxiety, lean into that nervousness. You, and you probably will not be the only person there who is feeling that. So, you know, maybe look out for, mm-hmm. you know, your, uh, your neurotic homeboy, ne- neurotic homegirl who's also in some corner <laughs> or also been at the bar the entire time and make a new friend. And we think of wingmen um, mm-hmm. and like this dating context or whatever, but. It's also, I think it's even more helpful for someone who deals with this sort of anxiety, social anxiety, to bring a friend. I love a wingman. Um, I love it yeah. because I, um, 
I do get like actually anxious in social situations, and especially when ones where I don't know everyone. You know, I love mm-hmm. a curated room where like I do know at least some of the people. Um, that's why I always love like the bane of my existence is invited to an event, not a friend's event, but like a public event or something or a media event where it's like no plus one. And it's like, okay, girl, well, I, I don't know what you want me to do. Just wander around here by myself. Yeah, stalk the, the bar, corridors. Yeah. Right. Unless I specific, and th- those are always the ones when you, well, you have to go, you go there and like, you're so excited to see like someone that you do know, you didn't know they were going to be invited. Like at the end of the bar, uh, you're like, oh my God, I got to talk to you. Um, and those have actually been great moments where I've sort of like bonded with, a friend that I've known tangentially or maybe just online or like even casually, like you see them at an event like that and you're the only two people who sort of know each other. Like that mm-hmm. can be fun, but it is stressful going into it. And then also, you know, tur- turn off the podcast right now, teens, but I love a smoke break. <laughs> <laughs> the smoke and break really does facilitate something socially that I kind of sometimes wish I were. A part of. I want to also say to Damon's point. Yeah, it's not like a. I can't believe I'm about to use the word party foul. It's not a party foul to acknowledge <laughs> awkwardness. You know. In fact, I was just watching an interview with Get Ready Amy Mann. I know Ira can't believe it, and she said she had been reading up on the fact that like actually telling the truth gives you like a dopamine rush. Like mm-hmm. to be you know authentic to um, say what's actually on your mind. I think is immediately calming. It just is what we should be doing anyway. So if you feel like you're stuck with your nervousness, you know, relieving yourself of that immediately, just like, you know, realizing that other people are human beings too and acknowledging it, I think is probably the best first step. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and I think that, you know, when people deal with this sort of anxiety, and I know that I, you know, dealt with this too, you you tend to think that you're feeling a singular, like you're the only person who's experiencing this. You're the only person who's anxious. You're the only person that's nervous, you know, and that's just, that's just not true. And I, and again, you know, to this person who asked this question or anyone who has this concern, you know, it, it, it is very helpful just to realize that, you know what, you are not alone, right? You, if you enter this space with like 15, 20, 25, however many people, chances are there are going to be other people there who have the same shit going on that you do. Mm-hmm. You know what yes. I mean? And, 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 and just knowing that, just knowing that I'm not alone was something that helped alleviate, you know, my whatever anxiety I felt about going into new spaces. Yes, thank you. I always know Michael Jackson is at the party with me. You know, <laughs> I'm not alone. <laughs> Fabulous video. Definitely rewatch that. <laughs> All right, next question. <clears throat> at what age is the woman your father marries my father's wife and not your stepmother? <laughs> Speaking of Tyler Perry, like <laughs> my father's my father's yeah. wife starred to Cheetah Arnold. It also sounds like a movie from like the 30s when every movie was called like a father's wife. Uh, she, yeah, my, my friend Jordan has a uh, a fake funny title he brings up for 30s 40s. She saw her daughter. You know, just everything is like dramatic and basic. I love those. I always call. I always call um, recent friends who've just broken up with a boyfriend. I call them the gay divorcee. Oh, please. Because I love that title so much. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Kind of rhymes. Yeah. Um, 18. I I feel like once you graduated from high school, um, so what's that, 17, 18, or 19 Mm -hmm. if you're from Ohio, um, then that is the age where, you know, it's it's no longer your stepmom, it's your dad's wife. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Call her by their real name. Yeah, call Nancy. 
you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, or actually, Nancy is. There's there aren't many like forty year old Nancys these days, so maybe Tiff- Tiffany, Chloe, mm-hmm. Zoe, but it, whatever her name is, that's what you should just call her. Crystal Carrington. Point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's funny. Just thinking about you know that type of you know what to call people. I've been married for how long have I been married? For it'll be nine years this nine years. Yeah, nine years this year. I still don't know what to call my mother in law. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I don't call her by her first name mm-hmm. because that's just not something I'm going to do with a you know sixty something year old black woman. I don't call her Mrs. Her last name. Cause that just doesn't feel right. I don't. I also don't call her mom because she's not my mom. And I know there are some people who do that, but it's just yeah. I he's not my mom. So, so how I, do you address I, her? I say hi. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, how you doing? <laughs> what's, what's going on today? It sounds like you need but to manufacture a nickname for her, like Mrs. Boss, or yeah, well, Doctor Lady. <laughs> my kids call her, my my kids call her Meemaw, and and again I'm not I'm not going to do that either. So again, mm-hmm. this is I, I need to write into myself and 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 figure this out because or maybe you all can help me. Like what yeah. what it's should so I weird. call my in law? It's so weird because so my my dad's father uh, since when we were a kid, uh, my sister and I have called him Papa, um, mm-hmm. but. When referring to, I don't know what my mom and my grandmother on my mom's side um, refer to him as when they're around. They probably just say Henry to each other. But uh-huh. when talking to us, they only say Papa. So it is using that same language between each other. So it is weird that that sort of like nickname is just what's used in the family. Though you actually bring mm. up the weird point that it's not too hard to get around not having to call someone a name. Yeah, you know, I do you it at parties all the time. I mean, right. no, you, please. listen, you you go to you go to any party, um, you know, especially us. You know, like I'd be at high tops or anywhere. Like you run into some some person that you met six months ago once. It's like I don't know this person's name. I'll be like, "Hey, what's up?" You know, or like you you have like <laughs> different you have different nicknames uh, for people or just like general things that you say um, that imply. Sort of imply that I don't know. I don't know this. Per- imply familiarity, but like I don't know this person's name. No. Oh, please. No. And well, you know what my favorite activity to do is introduce somebody you know to that person. Yes. <laughs> Be like, oh, here's Ryan, and then they have to say their name, and yeah. you're like, okay, I'll bank that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm so obvious with it now, and sometimes I hate when you try to do that. And so many times I've done that, and then I ask a friend after, okay, what was that person's name? Because I could hear it or something, and they're like, oh, I didn't get it. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yeah, so you're worthless. Okay, yeah. Yeah, the worst, I, I feel like the worst with that is when you have an unsaved number in your phone. And mm. someone texts horrible. you. It's horrible. It's always and, a horror movie. And you're yeah. just trying to read context clues. You're having this conversation back and forth. Like, do I know them? Are they? Do I know them from, from school? Is this like, oh, is this a friend? Is this someone <laughs> I used to date? Like, what? what's happening? Did I meet them? At, at, did I meet them? In Milwaukee, yeah. like what? What? What is happening? I think a few right weeks now. ago, someone messaged me and was like, I, "I did not have the number saved, and we had not talked for like several months." 
Uh-uh. Uh, and I did, like, I did the honest thing for once, and I said, I'm so sorry, I do not have this number. Say, who is this? And they stopped talking to me. No way! <laughs> <laughs> they were pissed. Come on! It's how so, phones are. I also, know. just like, there's something always so depressing about looking back on a phone conversation like that where you didn't save the name because it makes you realize, like, how similar all these introductory conversations are. Like, wow, you mm-hmm. couldn't even establish an ad- identity on the other side. Just like, Oh, I'm wasting my time, like not even making these conversations memorable that I, I think I believe in while I'm having them, you know? Well, you know, a solution to this. Mm. Um, and this is something that I unfortunately discovered a couple years ago. Get doxxed. Because if you get doxxed, <laughs> if you get doxxed, you, you got to change all your numbers, right? And so if someone, you know, texts you or whatever, they find your number, you don't have, you know, new number saved. You could just say, hey, you know what? I just got doxxed. I don't know who you are. You could just, you know, you could just tell me, please, you know, share your name. So again, if you feel any sort of anxiety about this social situation, just get doxxed. I'm gonna do that I, at the next party though, when yeah. when someone talks to me, I don't know who they are. I'm so sorry. I was doxxed recently. Reminding your name again. <laughs> <laughs> just completely out of context. Yeah, everyone could everyone could use I feel like everyone could use a good doxing. Like every just just once, you know, just one time just to go through it. I mean it, you know, it was it was scary as fuck when it happened, but it also, you know, I never felt more alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> than, than oh yeah, first, character you know, building, I'm sure. Yeah, it was definitely, definitely for that first couple of weeks. That does remind me, though, that like now we're in an era where we have multiple social media ways to contact someone now, right? Like, mm-hmm. one, I have so, a lot of people, and I prefer it too. I have a lot of friends who I may not even have their number um, for our first few months of us knowing each other because we're only communicating through like Instagram DMs or something. But it also brings up the fact that, you know, when you used to like get a new phone number or something, right? When we only had like Facebook or something, um, you could just write on your Facebook status like, hey, got a new number, and your friends yeah. would see it. Mm-hmm. Now, if I got a new number, how the fuck am I going to contact all these people who have my number? Professionally, friends, like sending text blasts to people. I'm like, it's just not going to happen. Right. Wow. I, I can't believe I do actually look back on Facebook with some nostalgia occasionally but it was good for stuff namely events but it was really good for events it was really good for the period where you were really only friends with your friends Mm. yes right would you put up a message and it's like you could be like oh we're at this bar or like this party is like here or something like when it was really just going to your friends i guess that's what close friends or something is now if my number changed now i'd probably put it on close friends on instagram yeah i guess that's the closest yeah yeah but I am still on Facebook. I, I I still am active on Facebook. That's where a lot of my family is. Oh, so, that's, that's so you my believe way ISIS connected. works at Applebee's? Yeah. I, I do. I do. I do. <laughs> and it's not Applebee's. It's Chili's. So get it. Get it. Get it. Get it right. Um, you know, I, I stayed on Facebook because for my blog, that was what drove traffic. Mm-hmm. Like Twitter never really had an effect on actual like engagement on on the site, but but Facebook, if you went viral, Facebook viral, then you you saw it in mm-hmm. the numbers on the site. So I always just stay connected to Facebook, and I just haven't left. I I, I appreciate what I appreciate that allows me to sprawl in a way that Twitter, you know, I, I need the man spread, and and Twitter <laughs> just you know limits the characters, and Facebook doesn't, and so that's, that's it always was more of a. I don't know, a platform for me. 
No, it's fair. Well, we get metrics on like old like um MTV or like BuzzFeed like articles and shit. Like it would always be like there would always be like a big number from Facebook. People on Twitter, maybe this will shock you. Do not click on links. <laughs> it also runs a little bit more aloof on Twitter. We comment on the thing without having actually read the thing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Now I'm a boomer. Even when Twitter added that thing where it's like, you haven't read this article. Are you sure you still want to comment? People ignore it. Yes. No, no watch me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. One last question. This oh, is wow. a, what they used to call a humdinger. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you were popping with terminology today. Wow. My 26-year-old son works for an influencer who boasts about his rich life, functions as a life coach, but has horrible conservative views about women. Ooh, he sounds hot. The influencer (laughs) is 35 and a relative, too. His mother doesn't know where he picked up his ideas. My son is quiet, but must be a fan. He dropped out of college with good grades to do this. My question is, how do you fight misogyny among young Mixed race men. The influencer is polite around family, but we want to say something. What do we say? What if this was your child? I'm going to say the mixed race was a twist. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Ira and I are out. Yes. <laughs> so, um, since, since this is a relative of Andrew Tate, um, <laughs> I, yeah. Miss, I'll, I'll address this person to Mrs. Tate. So Mrs. Tate, um, this is a tough one because, you know, there's something about this influencer, you know, your nephew, Andrew, that your, uh, that your son was attracted to. Um, and, and so even if you remove the influencer from the equation, those beliefs that your son probably possessed before he still going to have. And so I, I think that, you know, he's at an age where, you know, what, what, did, he, what did she say? He was 26. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, you're not in the house anymore. You don't have that same sort of, you know, influence over your child that you would if the child was still in the house. I think if my nephew, I have like two, you know, 20-something nephews came to me with some fuck shit beliefs about whatever, I would just pepper them with questions. Like I would just just hit them over the head, like so. Why, so why do you believe this? And so so is this true? And so did you read about this? And just keep hit, just bombard them like an avalanche of questions until they rec- until until they're forced to acknowledge that what they believe is bullshit. Right. There really is something um, about just asking questions where I yeah. think it sits with people. You know, mm-hmm. like like if if you can't answer it, your brain is still working on it. It's not like you just ignored it. Yeah, that's what yeah. you do when someone says Tarantino's their favorite director. Just keep asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> really? Hateful Eight? <laughs> Grindhouse, did that work for you? I was on the fence. Yeah. <laughs> he actually had the better one. Oh, definitely. Death definitely. Proof is better Planet, than Planet it, it Terror is. or whatever. It, it is. It is. Uh, it is. I would say it's something like this. I feel like this isn't just like an Andrew Tate influencers kind of question. I feel like this is sort of like an age-old question um, taken to like maybe a darker extreme. You know, there's always the question of how do you as a parent continue to influence a son um, once they've, you know, left the nest? You know, it's it's easier for rich people because um, 
this rich parent would just be hiring their 26-year-old son to work in the family <laughs> company, and they wouldn't be having to work for some influencer, you know? Um, but yeah, that, it's hard because I, I can't imagine, you know, like, my parents, you know, telling me, like, not to do something at 26 and me being like, well, I don't give a fuck, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. Unless you're, like, tied to them financially. And if this person is working for the influencer, then, you know, he it could be, be hard. at home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like he's living at home. Uh, so, you know, maybe maybe, maybe there's a way to affect things there, you know? Yeah, like, I, it, it, you know, it is a humdinger, right? Because, you know, you, you know, and we're talking about an influencer, but yeah, the, the, the parent after a certain age just doesn't have that same level of influence. And so... What this is why do people you join do? Cults, do you, you know? I mean, do you? And 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 also, you know, this might not be the most fair thing to say, but what role have you played? You know what I mean? Like how you know what beliefs did you pass on to your son, uh, where he now considers this like a, a good career option? Like you know, because this shit doesn't happen in a vacuum. Does he hate women you know because I mean? of you? well also there's just i think a critical part of growing up a crucial part of growing up is being fucking wrong you know it's Mm -hmm. just a matter of do you realize it or do Mm -hmm. you um reconcile with why you thought these things etc but i think generally speaking most um kind of well-formed adults have these come to jesus moments where they realize oh i was like completely i don't know why i needed to think that or whatever so Maybe it's just the first step in finally coming around to being right. Who knows? Yeah, it, and this, this, this question kind of reminds me of, like, the, the conversation that I feel like is happening in more, I guess, white spaces about what to do with family members who are, like, QAnon or, you know, or, you know, manga or whatever, manga. I always say manga, but it's manga. <laughs> it's manga or it's manga. I don't right. think really co- yeah. <laughs> No, the... <laughs> <laughs> Make American great again. Oh, so how do, how do you how do you, ma, maga maga maga? Okay, because I always say manga. Yeah, which Cause is like because I, I always did, know I people would say butcher. maggots. Like you know, so that's how I heard it was like maga. And so, what do you do? And I was asked this question like a couple times. It's like, what do you do with a family member who you know is is gone so far right that you know you. you you know, that they're almost unreachable. It's like, mm-hmm. do you just not engage them anymore? Like with that Thanksgiving or, you know, whatever holidays, you know, do you just accept them as who they are and continue to invite them to the fold? And my answer is always hell to fuck. No, you don't do that. Like you have to make it uncomfortable for them. You know what I mean? Because in, in particularly in that context, and we're talking about like white person, you know, they're not going to listen to me, <laughs> right? They're not, there's nothing that I could say that could possibly sway someone who is, who is that far right. But maybe if you are their cousin, their aunt, their nephew, their son, their mother, you have some sway. Mm-hmm. And so I think getting back to the mom and his influencer or the, the mom and the, the, I don't know, the assistant to the influencer, make life uncomfortable. For your son. But if you, you make know, it too uncomfortable, do they leave home 
and then go under the wing of this person because that's how Sydney joined the cult that Tracy Lords ran on Melrose Place. <laughs> <laughs> I think Ira has brought, a doctorate, as you can I see. Think, <laughs> I, I see. I think you. I think. <laughs> I think you run that risk because what's the alternative? That you just do nothing. That's fair. And, and allow them to do that too. No, so you, I, I think weirdly uh, speaking on the uh, mega relatives thing. I think weirdly speaking for myself, the problem is confronting in a way that ends ends up not feeling repetitive like mm. how, like how many times can you possibly bring, bring up you're wrong for these obvious reasons like you're you're not even approaching reality you know let alone your all these other things racist misogynist xenophobic etc you know how do you do that in a novel way you know keeping the conversation going but of course it's not really a conversation it's just this is insanity, but yeah, and, and context matters too. I mean, if this yeah. if it's like your ninety eight year old grandma who's still racist, like you know she's going to die tomorrow. Let <laughs> Ethel, let me ma continue <laughs> to hate to hate Meemaw everyone. Really the start yeah, of this episode. Give, give, yeah, give her, give her, give her that. You could give her that in her in her last days. But again, if it's someone who's a bit younger, who has a bit more more years to live on Earth, then again, I think you you need to. You need to challenge that. You need to confront that. You need to make it, you need to make them uncomfortable, whether that's physically uncomfortable or, you know, intellectually uncomfortable. You need to challenge them and, and make them, make them cringe, make them, you know, I I don't know. You you just can't allow them to continue to just exist. Unfettered. Got to be prepared to lose them too. You know, I mean, historically this isn't new, you know, like, some people lost some kids to Manson, you know? Like, mm-hmm. there were medieval death cults and shit, you know? Like, people are always going to be dumb. And who almost literally did lose a kid to Manson? Miss Angela Lansbury. She didn't, though. It's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's an uplifting story, ultimately. Look that one up. <laughs> yeah. um, that's one of my favorite genres of stories, by the way. Celebrities avoiding, um, you know, murder. Avoiding murder. Oh, uh, right. Okay. Like, weird, we like unseemliness connected to celebrity families. Well, you know, like Blondie's insistence that Ted Bundy tried to kill her. Deborah Harry. Yeah. Oh, I mean that she was like almost think, picked up by Ted Bundy, but uh, I'm like, well, I don't know if that wasn't. happened, but maybe it you makes sense. The first the timeline. You haven't seen the first 15 minutes of American Gigolo. That will make you refall in love with the song. Call me one of the best songs of the eighties. Anyway. Right. Okay. <laughs> I actually will because I I feel I thought that that was like in the genre of like because I remember years ago specifically on Keep It Too you being like um, you were tired of hearing like specific Blondie songs because you felt like they had gotten overplayed and they had lost right. sort of the energy of what it even means to so like I'm listening to Blondie yeah now like just feel like energy. commercial yeah. songs no yeah. they feel like supermarket songs now right yeah, yeah. like uh, <laughs> like one way or another is only associated with me with uh, like kids movies of the nineties. And also mm-hmm. now, like, um, detergent commercials or something. <laughs> I mean, you got to have the rowdy uh, detergent commercial. Yeah. Uh, I've never seen American Jiggle, but I should watch it. I think it's an Ira movie. I think you should watch it. Okay. Yeah. All right. When we are back, it's time to keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode... Keep it. Damon, as our guest of honor, what is yours? Yeah, I just, you're watching the movie. You're home. 
I have the caption on because you need the captions to watch movies now because the sound is all fucked up with everything um, that you watch at home. And it'll involve a, the show, one of the characters will use the N-word, will say nigga, you know, which is the colloquial version, you know, as we all know, of a, of a slur that um, has been used to, you know, to hate, to subjugate, whatever. But then you look at the caption, they don't have the colloquial spelling. <laughs> they have the traditional spelling. The ER, <laughs> the, ER the hard R. That's so the insane. Word, the word that shall not be named is is what comes across in the caption. And it's just like, yo, we the, the solution is, you know, we need more niggas writing captions. Like that, that that's that's what needs to happen because again, there is this there is this lexicon that is lost in the translation. And whenever that happens. It is just so disconcerting, and it takes you completely out of the experience of watching this show. It's like, yo, this character just called me a nigger, and, and it didn't. It is not what happened, mm. <laughs> right? Lord. It's not what happened. But again, you're not. You know, you go into certain spaces, right? Anticipating, mm-hmm. like, okay, this this is this might be a state. Like when I, you know, I live in Pittsburgh, so I've spent time in West Virginia. And it's like, okay, I'm in West Virginia. There are certain things that might happen and so you brace yourself for them now fortunately those things haven't happened to me in my travels to west virginia but when Mm -hmm. i'm sitting at home on my couch i'm not expected to be called a nigger Mm -hmm. by my tv (laughs) you know what i mean it's like i bought this tv (laughs) you know what i mean you're in my house i own you you know what i mean so why are you (laughs) why are you calling me why are you calling me the slur yeah so so yeah the hard R feels a lot like getting Pepsi when you ask for Coke. I get it. And I would say the show that does it the most is Snowfall. Snowfall is always used the ER. And I need to know who's writing these captions. It's those FX. It's those FX. Atlanta does it too. <laughs> Atlanta would do it's those FX shows. Also, as a reader of August Wilson plays, since college... I have always been concerned that all the black actors, whatever you know, whatever you do at August Wilkins show, you use the colloquial version. But mm-hmm. every August Wilkins play, he has written it out with ER, and I just want to know what was going on in his head. <laughs> yeah, you know, August. You know, and again, I'm a Pittsburgher. August, you know, August mm-hmm. Wilson's in my blood. You know, and, and it's funny. So the thing that made me think of this, the most recent occurrence of this happening, I was on, I was doing a talk in the University of Pittsburgh mm-hmm. um, a couple of weeks ago. And before the talk, the, um, the moderator that I was in conversation with, uh, Michael Sawyer, who's a professor, showed a clip from Fences on um, mm. the Wilson play. And they showed the iconic clip of like, a, or the Choi character telling his son that, you know, I don't, I don't owe you nothing. I don't, I don't need to love you, et cetera, et cetera. And they had, you know, Denzel and I forgot who the young actor was playing his son. Is that the and, nigger on the streets scene? Uh, He's not the, that line. Someone, someone calls somebody. I think it actually may be in Jitney. When that, when that, that, you ain't nothing but a nigger on the street to me is a line in an August Wilson play. <laughs> and when we read that in college, the black kids in the Loyal uh, University, Chicago theater department used to say that phrase to each other. Every other day, <laughs> it was no. It wasn't. It was the scene where he's talking to the son, and the son is like, "Do you love me? 
do you like no do you like me mm. and like, I gotta like, like don't you. got nothing to do with it you know i don't gotta like you etc cetera, etc cetera. and so we're watching and it has a caption and and instead of nigga the er version is shown and so this was the entry this was the first thing that was shown on this panel like, for, i didn't even say a word yet and so i had to address it i was like yo i'm here in front of all these white students and this screen has called me a nigger. Like what? Like what? What do you? Where do you expect me to go from here? <laughs> right. So again, this this captioning thing just needs to. I don't know. We just need. And I, and I get again the 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 difference in translation sometimes, but with this word in particular, because mm-hmm. the difference is so jarring. And I yeah. mean, we just got to stop doing that. Also, by the way. Uh, is this just a consequence of like texting culture? But now we all just watch TV and movie with captions now. Like I almost all the time, unless it's like Jeopardy, I'm putting captions up on the screen. I do too. <laughs> Even when I'm watching a new film at home, it's like, it, the, I mean, the theaters are loud, you know, but I feel like when you're watching it at home, the sound quality is so weird. Yeah. Maybe I can never know what people are saying. Quality thing. Yeah. Well, no, there was an actual, um, there was an actual article or maybe series of articles about this, like last year, about how the sound quality is so bad, like the mixing or whatever is so bad. Watching things at home that you have to watch with captions now because you just cannot understand what people are saying. Um, and and yeah, and, and and again, I always thought that you know, and I'm just getting old. My ears are getting bad, but apparently, everyone is doing it now. Well, I love captions because, as you know, I love a foreign film. (laughs) (laughs) The posture Ira just summoned was so (laughs) insane. (laughs) Demoralizing, really. Lewis, what's your keep it this week? Well, my keep it is full bizarro. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin has signed a decree to honor the American actor... Steven Seagal with the state order of friendship. First of all, is anything fucking lamer than an order of friendship? I mean, it's giving sad. Second of all, <laughs> they're like longtime friends. Steven Seagal is uh, a Russian citizen. Uh, but an additional keep it to the fact that it sort of makes me nostalgic for the kind of celebrity that Steven Seagal was, which was no one ever expected a motherfucking ounce of quality from this person even once for 10 minutes. No one saw executive decision and thought, well, here's some promise. Here, here, this, here, the road to Oscar begins now. You know, in a way, it could only be a male celebrity. I can't think of any woman with like a sort of similar arc. But truly, like if Jean-Claude Van Damme movies were too smart for you, please seek out the filmography of Steven Seagal. That is how bad and ridiculous they were. Mark but, uh, for death he, is iconic, though. Oh, iconic. I was wondering if you had a favorite one. Yeah, uh, that or like I, Under Siege. Under Alpha, Siege is the one I saw the most often. Yeah, yeah. Alfred Justice is mine. Mm, Alfred wow. Justice is 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 mine. Yeah, they were always on TV. Yeah. Also, this man has never not had a an a both iconic and dubious look. So it's either like a ponytail or it is now with what I'm going to call Velcro facial hair. It is giving Mr. Potato Head and he is entering his 70s with just shock jet black facial hair. It's never been done before. I've never seen anything like it. But anyway, he and Vladimir Putin are friends and I guess needed to go to town hall and make it official. So happy for those two gents. Is Steve Seagal the white Tyler Perry? (laughs) 
Well, is he making the movies? I guess he would sometimes write the movies, right? Yeah. So that's a beautiful thought. But he's only directed mm. one. So mm. I don't know. I feel like I feel I f- I mean we were talking about them earlier. Um I feel like the white Tyler Perry might be the Farrelly's. Yeah, cuz it's like it's like uh, not just silly, it's like embarrassingly scatological and wild. And it's it's very it's very it's very whiteness and they also then veered into green book. Um you know, and Tyler Perry tried to do the prestige. I don't know. We we should try to figure out who the white Tyler Perry is at some point. I feel like we can have a tournament for that and vote, et cetera. Yeah, I feel like I mean, so it has to be someone who who has become extremely popular mm-hmm. while existing outside of the mainstream mm-hmm. and existing out of mainstream prestige and critical acclaim too. Um, and 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 so when I was thinking of Seagal, that's what I was thinking of, but it's not a perfect analogy, obviously. Um, I don't know, like who are like the the, the popular white stand up comics that that sell out. You know, or, or, or like, who's like the Kenny Chesney of white stand-up? It still might be too too s- smart to compare, but like, Melissa McCarthy, when she works with her husband, is that the white Tyler Perry? Because without, I'm, she's like, you know, an Oscar nominee. But when mm-hmm. she's with him, it's like, what the white, fuck is going on? White people need to be slightly embarrassed, but also proud of them in some way because of the work that they do for other white people. Like a George Lucas. Sure. <laughs> Awful provocative. <laughs> Awful. Well, well, we'll open this question to the public. Please yeah. please jump in with uh, your choices uh-huh. in this genre. Ira, what is your keep it this week? Yeah. Only black people respond. <laughs> <laughs> Only mixed race people respond. Yeah. <laughs> keep it intra-community. Okay. Uh, <laughs> my keep it goes to the responses online to the name that Kiki Palmer gave her baby. Now, the baby's name is Leotis, Leo for short, Andrelton Jackson. Now, listen, it's an old-timey name. She even said, born during Black History Month with a name to match. So, listen, <laughs> she, she knew what she was doing. But the jokes then started to veer into, like, well, why is she giving him this name? Like, it's going to be hard, for, like, you know, like, giving black people these, like, names, you know, like, um, he's going to have to go to, like, a Leo or something, you know, like, talking about, like, black people. And then it started going into the conversations about black people with black names, you know, and, like, getting jobs and stuff like that. And I was like, I didn't know we were going to veer so quickly anti-black. On the same day that the baby's name dropped. <laughs> but also, we just had this whole Nepo baby conversation, right? I promise you, Leotis is not going to not be getting work because of his name. <laughs> whatever, no. whatever field they choose, they will be fine. So it really just revealed a lot of people's anger and maybe sort of self-hatred over, like, this name. Because it was it got really out of pocket. Um, it's, it's the same thing, like, when people... Um, maybe you've seen this, Damon. When people get mad that everyone's talking about Jonathan Majors being sexy, mm-hmm. 
they veer into like calling him like with his they talk about like his civil rights nose yeah. or like his uh you know his like plantation looks or something and i'm like we can we can make jokes without having to jump all the way there yeah someone called him a pullman porter at, at some point i saw on twitter <laughs> and um but to your point like i i felt like I felt like we were like there are certain respectability conversations that exist online. Mm-hmm. I thought that the black names having a black name will won't you know won't let you get a job. I thought that conversation was done. Like I thought that feels like very 2012. Yes, maybe even 2005. Like I didn't I didn't realize that they were still making the black per they were still making the brand of black person who gets online and has that conversation, not after fucking President Barack Hussein Obama, not after, <laughs> you know, Beyonce, Serena, um, you know, Connalisa. I mean, you just go down the line of these names that are some, that, you know, has some name to them, right? And haven't obviously stopped these people from, you know, achieving whatever. Um, Famously, you know, like, a more it, interesting name makes you more memorable. I don't know. I, I used to hate the name Ira as a kid. Hated it. Um, until I got maybe like high school, like in the middle school, high school. And then I'm like, I loved it because my name was not the same as 80% of the other people that I went to school with. And it made me stand out. Yeah. And even if you, you know, think of like some of the professional athletes who are known on a first name basis, it's not always just because they're great. It's because they're named LeBron. Or your name Kobe, Kyrie, right? You know what I mean? It's never Matt. Yeah, it's never Matt. Like Tim Duncan was as great of a player as all of those guys, but he's not known on a first name basis because Mm -hmm. he doesn't have that. You no one, no one. You refer to Tim like who the fuck are you talking about? Um, Even last names, because I feel like the only reason we know like the white player Larry Bird that much is because of his name. Yeah, Bird, Bird, Bird. Yeah, you know Bird. So so yeah that that conversation and again I thought I thought we were past that I thought that the respectability niggas were had had updated <laughs> their um their conversation on an OQ and had left the black names won't get you employed thing behind. Well, um, yeah. I mean, they're usually just having debates from the movie Jungle Fever. You know, <laughs> we're we're we're, we're, we're we, we are still in the interracial dating loop. <laughs> And it will, it will never progress. Mm-hmm. So they had yeah. to mix it up somehow. But you know, leave Kiki and this baby's name alone. I'm impressed. I'm impressed, Ira, that you knew how to pronounce the middle name because I was I was struggling. You know, with the, I with just, the middle name. Did you and, hear someone pronounce? Did you like like how? No. Can you walk me through how you were able to do that? How you pronounce it? But I would <laughs> like to say that. Um, in the theater, when you're given a script, you make a choice. <laughs> oh, thanks. Uh, uh, who's, who am I talking with here? Uh, Maria Callas or uh, uh, Zoe Caldwell? Yes. Uh, Hagen. Yeah. Ira Slavsky over yes. here. Yes. Oh, woof. I can't believe that's not been stated before on this podcast. Woof. Simply phone chilling. Yeah. Uh, all right. Damon, thank you for being here. You can listen to Stuck with Damon Young for free only on Spotify. Uh, We had a great time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, it's always a joy. Always a pleasure to be here. I always feel 
like I haven't watched enough TV when I come on the show. And I feel like I I watch the most TV of everyone I know. But when I come here, I am like, holy shit, I I am not. I need to catch up. Oh, no, we have a syndrome here. Yeah. yeah we didn't choose to, to be up. this way is usually the excuse. So there you go. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, you know, stuff with Damon Young is Spotify monogamous. We, you know, we don't do the polyamorous, uh, you know, podcast platform thing there. So if you want to listen to our show, you have to. No stitching, no swinging. Nah, none of that. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you for being here. And thank you also to Tennis for joining us this week. Uh, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Don't forget to follow us at Cricket Media on Instagram and Twitter. And subscribe to Keep It on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. And if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a five-star review. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III, that's me, and Louis Vertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroot, Nar Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for production support every week. And as always, keep it as filmed in front of a live studio audience. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com.